Welcome to Cold Steel, the Canadian Journal of Surgery podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. The goal of the CJS podcast is threefold. The first is to highlight the best research currently being completed by Canadian surgeons. The second is to offer educational topics for both surgeons and trainees alike. And most importantly, the third goal is to inspire discussion, thoughts, creativity, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy it. Hello, everyone. In this episode, we had the opportunity to talk to Dr. Emily Yosh. Dr. Yosh is a trauma surgeon at the Vancouver General Hospital and has been doing some amazing work in the field of global surgery. She talked to us about what it was like to be deployed in Haiti, to some of the ethical challenges related to global surgery, and gave some really sound advice for trainees looking to do global surgery as part of their academic career. We hope you enjoy. Well, first of all, thank you very much for uh, for meeting with us on Cold Steel, Emily. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. I know how busy you are in your personal and your professional life, so it's, it's a real privilege. Um, you know, to those of us that know you um, uh, reasonably well, there's clearly two really strong professional passions uh, um, that we see you engage in. One is obviously injury and trauma, and the other is certainly international and humanitarian-type surgical care. We're curious if you could tell the listeners um, how you developed a passion for each of these, maybe people along the way that ignited your interest in them, and, and just sort of how you became uh, um, such a leader in this, these two areas. And that's great. First of all, thank you uh, both for inviting me on this podcast. I think that's a super great initiative and uh, very modern. Um, so that's a great question. And actually, I've... When I decided I wanted to be a surgeon, I wanted to be able to do it all, basically. And what I mean by do it all is be able to tackle a lot of different problems and a lot of different body cavities and not specialized in just one system. And I also wanted to help people. And uh, initially, my path was towards infectious diseases. I thought I would do something in HIV and because I thought it was one of the world's greatest problems. And then uh, looking into surgery, I realized that you could do a lot of good there too. And there was a huge gap in terms of delivery of surgical care. So that led me to mostly trauma because, as I said, I wanted to do different things and be able to tackle problems everywhere. And I really liked that specialty because you just basically could uh, operate on any area of the body and be able to stop the bleeding and uh, really uh, save patients who are in extremis. But also, uh, on the global scale, it made sense because so many patients now die from bleeding and uh, source control problems, basically surgical disease, and that's uh, pretty easy to address and very teachable. Uh, so I thought that would be really a great combination for me to do um, trauma, to be able to tackle that problem globally. That makes so much sense. Absolutely. And and one of my favorite articles you wrote was actually published in Roscoe and talking about these um, two passions. And you talk in that article, uh, along with your colleagues at the VGH, about what it takes to deploy a surgical team in a crisis situation. Can you talk about what goes into planning a surgical humanitarian mission? Yeah, I think that's that was something we wanted to talk about. And on an ethical lens as well, because I feel like uh, more and more we recognize that what we try to do globally in terms of like supporting surgical care is probably not the right approach to it. 
And uh, so looking back at deployments and how you prepare for them, we realized that there was tons of room for improvement. And one really good example is the Haiti earthquake in 2010. Uh, everybody knows that that was, of course, a huge disaster with enormous impact on populations, but also was the biggest deployment of emergency medical teams ever seen. And it was not the most efficient. Basically, um, hospitals uh, sent surgeons, surgical teams from everywhere in the world. And they arrived from three to like, I think, up to 80, 90 days post-earthquake uh, and did various things in a very uncoordinated fashion and sometimes created chaos and really overwhelmed the local healthcare system, which was already extremely fragile. So this was probably not the right way to do things. And what is great is that the world community reacted and the WHO actually created specific guidelines to deploy emergency medical teams after this episode. And uh, the criteria now are really strict in terms of who can be an emergency medical team, uh, what services they need to deliver, uh, how high quality they need to be, what type of training uh, is required for uh, their surgical providers, etc. And then uh, the second piece that they worked on was developing an in-country coordination mechanism because what happened in Haiti is basically uh, this whole coordination was taken over by uh, United Nations organizations. So basically, foreign organizations would just come in and start uh, doing surgery, basically, or other medical services. But that was all coordinated from above and not from local agencies, from local government, from the local health uh, ministry. Uh, and that created a lot of uh, chaos. Um, so what the WHO warrants now is that every country has a mechanism for coordination in terms uh, in uh, in the event, sorry, of a humanitarian disaster or um, that could be either a military conflict or uh, an actual um, um, earthquake or environmental uh, disaster. So that's great, and I hope that's really going to show that uh, we do this better. And in terms of preparation, like I can talk a little bit about what I did because uh, I joined the Red Cross uh, because these are this is an organization that's actually really well organized in terms of deploying those types of emergency emergency medical teams. So the Red Cross has um, five emergency response units, which are fully um, um, fully um, operational hospitals that are self-sufficient for up to seven days, and they can deploy within 48 hours to any country. And that's really great because we can actually do surgery, uh, provide post-operative care, and do tons of other medical interventions in those hospitals. And as I said before, they're fully self-sustainable, so we're not using any local resources. And so that's why I did that training because I thought, you know, if I'm going to provide some humanitarian response, I want it to be ethical, to be useful, um, to address the right problems and to do it without uh, overburdening uh, the local system. And so that training is pretty complex, to be honest, for anybody who wants to join the Red Cross. Uh, there's uh, interviews to make sure that you understand the principles of those humanitarian responses and what the Red Cross is all about. Then there's uh, training that you have to do in Ottawa, which is called the impact training, which goes into all the principles of um, humanitarianism, um, how the Red Cross works in different countries, what the difference between the, IC the ICRC and the Red Cross societies are. So it's pretty intricate. You learn to uh, really navigate that type of world, which is not a language we know very much of, being a surgeon. And then there's the field training, which is really the cool part. Uh, so you get to deploy in um, 
an ERU basically, um, of course, in a non-disaster setting, it's all a simulation, but it's very real. Uh, they have you deploy the whole hospital, build the operating room, uh, including the operating room tables, set up all the instruments, your anesthesia machine, et cetera, uh, as a team, and then they send you patients. And they make uh, mass casualties, cool oranges, create cholera pandemics, whatever, uh, just to test your limits and make sure you understand the principles and are able to be uh, able to deploy that hospital when the time comes. So I think that's a really great way to get involved in that type of humanitarian response because I feel like it's done properly. Uh, we're following WHO guidelines. Uh, like I said, not overwhelming the local resources and uh, try really to address the more pressing issues when we deploy in the field. It's it, it's such a good comment, you know, Emily, and it's it's been such a, a helpful thing as you see firsthand, and many of us know to organize that internationally. I mean, two two really great Canadians that you and I know well um, really just got on planes, showed up in Haiti, and said, "We're we're here to operate. Well, how can we help?" and this, the drive, of course, for that is always good, but really they were in the way and, and people had to look after them and eventually they were in bed with the Israeli group there, but it was a real problem. When when I went to Haiti, it was much, much later uh, and it was more of a reconstructive effort. And it was with a, a, a reasonably well-known group uh, run out of Canada, but one of the things um, that I was concerned about with Haiti in particular was that there seemed to be no local legacy so we would show up, we would do these operations. There was, for example, lots of trauma orthopedics going on around us. But the, the local tr surgeons, the local trainees really had no footprint. And, you know, although I certainly don't personally work at the level that you do internationally, it was very different from other experiences I had had in Honduras and through Africa, where the, the local groups were very involved and the residents and the trainees were very involved with us. And you felt like you were, you were leaving a helpful, somewhat helpful legacy going forward with regard to training and, and so on. Can, can you comment on that? What are your thoughts? No, that's really great. And I've always struggled with that exact example. And to me, I've only been to Haiti once to do a mission that was, I think, not very sustainable and would probably not do it again. But I had the same feeling that uh, local healthcare providers were not fully engaged and and I couldn't really put my finger on it because I've deployed to Africa too and it was completely different. Uh, yeah, I could feel yeah, that, uh, yeah, local providers were proud to work there and even if they had low resources, they can actually do stuff with it and they were so excited to receive training and to think that they could actually provide quality of care even when the humanitarian organization would leave. Uh, but in Haiti, it feels like what, what it felt to me, and I'm hoping I'm wrong, but what it felt to me is that the population and including the healthcare providers were so used to having their healthcare system completely supported by foreign organizations and NGOs that they just really put that, all this responsibility in their hands and just were just going with the flow and, and that created kind of a sense of entitlement like when I was over there in this hospital that was built by two Belgian surgeons it was it was it was frustrating to see that patients demanded CT scans and and high levels of care that while they didn't even have the basics there and really not an understanding of of what 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 it was feasible and what was possible to build locally in terms of capacity building for that country so I'm not sure if it's because the country has always been very weak. It's it's a fragile state when you think about it that way, um, and that they were never able able to build a full, long healthcare system. But it probably is also the fault of a lot of uh, 
um, humanitarian agencies and organizations that have just been in country forever and have just not allowed the system to build itself. But I, I can't put my finger on it. I wish I had the right answer because I feel like there's so much good to be done there, but it's it, it's been difficult. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so interesting, right? Because both of those examples, whether it's Haiti at a, at a structural level or maybe an outlook level, or whether it's you know our, our Canadian friends just showing up in a, in a crisis ready to help, it, it really does underscore the importance of knowing what you're walking into and getting educated before you leave and, and hooking in with the right groups and, and you know talking to people like you before you ever consider something like that. I know that even MSF struggles. MSF is an organization that's um, really trying to be where it matters the most and in a really timely fashion, and I respect them a lot uh, for that. And they've had an in-country presence in Haiti forever, I think, uh, for at least 40 years. And uh, we're never able to close any of their projects uh, because they can't leave anything sustainable behind. They can't hand over those activities to the local um, healthcare system. But what I've struggled with, too, is uh, they've been really, really um, trying to engage their local physicians to actually uh, stay and build those hospitals and keep those services running. But what they faced is when those local providers were uh, were uh, kind of like put on that spot and asked if they were want to keep going uh, or engage in those activities, uh, they would actually prefer to go work in private hospitals and and do a kind of a half-and-half half type of practice where it became very unsustainable to actually support the MSF hospitals with only local providers. And and I really don't know if it's a, mm. if it's a systemic issue because, like I said, of a weak government, but and them being used to not having any public services, so turning to the, the private workforce, and that could just be it. But I know that even MSF has had a really hard time, and they employ 90% of local um, staff. They, they very rarely deploy expatriates if they don't have to. They all just employ local staff. So uh, I guess one of the one of the things that I struggle with, and we, we've sort of been talking about this at, at different angles. What do you, what do you think is the way forward then for for those of us who want to be interested and be involved mm-hmm. in global humanitarian surgery in terms of establishing a real system? Like, do you think the way forward is really to focus on education and training local providers? Is it um, collaborative type approaches? Like, What are your thoughts on how you navigate this type of ethical, kind of real real ethical challenge? Yeah, for sure. And I've really scratched my head over this because, to be honest, a really cool thing to do in that type of work is to do the deployment. And I think all of us will say, and I'm sure Chad will agree, that it's it's very exciting to go and deploy in those difficult settings and those disaster um, uh, settings where you can actually provide help and you feel useful and you feel like you're using your training to provide care for most people. And that that's really fun, but at the same time, it's not sustainable and you're not building capacity. So it's frustrating at the same time. So that's a great question. Uh, I, I think there's multiple ways to approach this. I think you can take like a big picture approach and, and think about uh, capacity building in terms of systems. And then you're thinking about working with like big agencies like a WHO building on the uh, NSOAP. So these are national surgical and anesthesia programs that have been launched in sub-Saharan Africa to actually try to build that capacity. And that goes through like local governments. And it's a pretty 
heavy and long process, but I think that's what's going to build capacity in the long term. And uh, people who are super involved with that are the Miguel Group, the Center for Global Surgery at Miguel, and they do a lot of that work. Uh, another approach which is not um, opposed to that is, is building capacity through training. And that's the one I'm interested in taking because working with MSF, I see tons of opportunity to actually train local providers because MSF will offer infrastructure. They'll build... Um, they'll use local hospitals, but they'll build capacity in terms of like setting up an operating room um, with very high standards that they try to uh, be basically similar to European, North American standards, uh, good instruments, good equipment, uh, training of nurse anesthetists, the trainings of OR tech sterilization. Everything is included. It's a package deal, basically, of surgical care. But what's not included is the actual surgical provider, the person doing surgery. And what I've noticed, I've done two deployments, one in um, Congo and one in Central African Republic. And in those two places, we had zero local surgeons. And as I said before, MSF always recruits local surgeons. They they really uh, try to avoid hiring people from abroad and bringing expats over, especially when it's uh, uh, unstable environments. But we had to in those two projects because there was really no one there. But what there was were a lot of general practitioners, so clinical officers and medical officers who some of them were super keen on learning surgical skills and had good hands and could actually do procedures, but with no opportunity for real training. There was no structure behind it. And MSF has always been reluctant to do uh, this type of training for physicians because they're not a training agency, of course. They're not an academic organization. Uh, they're really a humanitarian um, organization. They're not supposed to do development, but at some point it becomes kind of a necessary endeavor if you want to leave something behind and build capacity and, and close projects uh, without thinking that you're going to end all those activities. So what we're trying to launch now is a task sharing project. Um, so that's basically uh, teaching surgical skills to non-surgeon providers. So that could be clinical officers and medical officers. Um, to basically build uh, knowledge and skills, essential surgical skills, so basically life-saving surgical procedures and very low-resource settings in MSF projects. So we're using the MSF infrastructure, infrastructure, the MSF tools, the MSF guidelines, the MSF protocols, everything that's already in place, and adding a training component to it um, through um, UBC, basically, and trying to see if we can actually build capacity that way. Um, by training local providers who will hopefully stay in country, stay in those settings, uh, and provide basic life-saving surgical uh, care to their patients. That's amazing. Wow. How, how long has that taken, Emily? Uh, well, it's been uh, since incredible. my first mission. I've actually wanted to do that, and I've pitched the idea to MSF multiple times. They've closed the doors 100% of the time, so I... Put this on ice a little bit uh, also because I had two babies in a row and uh, didn't really have time to think about it. But they actually reached out to me last year, a year ago, and wow. they said, we're ready to try this. They have never tried it before. There are task sharing projects all over Sub-Saharan Africa. This is not novel. It exists. We actually have one in Canada, the ESS uh, program uh, out of um, Saskatchewan. But uh MSF had never done something like that, and they had always opposed it, like very vehemently opposed it, because they say that these are not real surgeons, and they're not. They shouldn't allow an untrained surgeon's uh, unlicensed surgeon to perform surgical procedures, and they always were very firm about that. So this was a huge 180 change of heart from them. 
And so I said, okay, I would help because that was really something I wanted to do. And it's taken a whole year to actually, first of all, build that partnership, pick the project where we implement uh, the actual training program, select the candidates, the training, the trainees, um, and then start building this this curriculum. And so what I did is I'm I'm doing a modular online curriculum because they have access, they do have Wi-Fi there, and it's an easy way to actually transmit that knowledge. And the surgical skills part has to be taught in the field by the MSF deployed surgeon, which is the piece that's a little bit hard to control because uh, these settings are not uh, extremely safe. And so it would not be really... Um, I don't think it'd be a good idea to deploy Canadian surgeons every couple of months to actually perform the training, and it wouldn't be um, good continuous care. So we chose to deploy an MSF surgeon to that project for a year to perform the in-the-field training to the the skills training part, and the trainees are being evaluated uh, using uh, the new CBD model from the Royal College, basically the, the EPAs. So hopefully that works. So the training is in South Sudan. It's in Awel, South Sudan. Um, and I'm really hoping uh, this will go somewhere. I'm not, you know, hopeful that it will be perfect because I'm sure there's going to be a lot of uh, room for improvement. But the trainees are there. They're actually doing surgeries uh, and uh, doing the modules. Uh, and I'm actually going to go um, um, evaluate that project in two weeks in South Sudan. So we can give you more updates. Wow, that's that's unbelievable! It's such a legacy project, and you should be so proud of that. You know, and and our our community, not only in trauma, but in general surgery across the country, should be proud of you for 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 doing that. It's it's interesting to think about as a Canadian, you know, just uh, listening to you because the the reality is we sort of do that in Canada anyway, right? We we train GP surgeons and we certify GP surgeons that are in rural or extremely remote areas of Canada. It makes so much sense to us. So it's really interesting that the MSF had such a hardline stance for so long, so it's incredible that you, you can know, it, that. It's only in Australia and Canada that it's a very recognized uh, type of training. If you look, we have actually did a little bit of an environmental scale in terms of what type of test shifting, test driven projects were available in the world, and apart from Australia and Canada, there's not much, and Sub-Saharan Africa, but none of them are really mature and structured programs. They're just basically doing it uh, on the job. It's on the job training, which is great too, and I think it needs to be done, but but in terms of like high income countries and high resource settings, uh, only yeah these two countries are actually uh, doing this type of training. That's the angle I used to convince MSF. I said, you know, if we're doing this and approving this in our country and uh, basically uh, validating those uh, GP surgeons to perform those surgeries, I don't see why we couldn't uh, export that concept to Sub-Saharan Africa. Unbelievable! That's amazing. If we, if we shift gears for a sec, uh, Emily, can can you tell us, uh, you know, certainly the listeners who may not know you uh, yet super well, what, where did you grow up? Where did you do your training? Uh, maybe who influenced you along the way and how did you end up in Vancouver? Yeah. Um, so I'm from Montreal. I'm French-Canadian. Um, and I did, uh, I grew up there and I did my medical school in McGill. Then went to Quebec City for a general surgery residency and did my trauma critical care fellowship at LA County in LA. And then from there, I actually initially wanted to go back to Montreal because this is where I grew up. And as I said, they have a very mature global surgery program there and excellent trauma program as well. But uh, there was no position there when I finished my fellowship in they had a um, locum opening in Vancouver, and that's what brought me here, and I never left. And I'm really glad I'm still here. 
Um, and in terms of influences, uh, when I decided I really wanted to do surgery, uh, as I said, I really wanted to do surgery that was useful for the most people. And so I started looking early into global surgery and MSF and read tons of book, books about uh, this organization, what they were doing, and, and who was doing humanitarian work and where. And I came across uh, one of the first female general surgeons, whose name is Lucille Teasdale, who actually gave her whole life to building a hospital in Uganda. That hospital is called St. Mary's Hospital in Lachore in northern Uganda. And she built it with her husband, the pediatrician Piero Corti. And they actually amazingly built something that's still standing right now. And not only is it still standing, it's actually providing training, uh, including surgical training uh, for uh, Ugandan medical students and, and residents in all specialties. And this hospital initially was just uh, funded from uh, their own um, organization. They got funding also from the Italian government, from from her husband, and from the Kenyan government, f from her. Uh, and they got full buy-in from the Ministry of Health in Uganda. And now I think it's funded 50-50 uh, by uh, Uganda and by uh, their foundation. So it's still running and it's going strong. And I was really lucky to be able to go there for a month as a medical student, just for an observership, which ended up being kind of a like a mini residency because they let me do a lot of things, which was really great. But but it was awesome to see that this was still working and it really gave me hope that there was there was things that we could do uh, in those settings, even if we keep saying that nothing works in Africa, it's not true because this is extremely uh, positive in terms of an example of a, of a local hospital that delivers high quality care. Uh, and like I said, in, in a lot of different uh, domains and specialties and is still going strong and is now providing training. So she was one of my first models. She actually died of HIV from um, exposure during her work over there. Um, but uh, yes, I I feel like this is the kind of model that I want to follow. I, I think she she did, it was a lot of sacrifice for her to do all this and I, I don't think I want to follow that exact um, Root, but uh, but definitely believing that you can build something locally is something that uh, remain really alive in me. There's so many of us that have been so deeply and and profoundly lucky to to either spend part of our training or or have these really enriched experiences on a global basis. For for me, as you know, it's been it's been South Africa over and over and over again, and it's important that I think we get out the narrative and that we that we we restate that. Some of these places and some of these countries are doing unbelievable work. I mean, you know, the, the randomized control trial that we did with, with us, the South African group in, mm -hmm. and at, at Hujaskir Hospital in Cape Town about draining, you know, stabbed hearts and positive pericardial windows versus not. I mean, that work couldn't get done anywhere else in the world. And I, I often feel really almost every day such gratitude towards all those folks that helped train me and, and really pushed me forward in huge leaps, quite honestly. And there's so much to be gained, but I, you know, I'm also very leery, you know, following your narrative, but we also have to be sure that we leave legacies, that we are not just taking and, and doing and performing surgical tourism, that, that we're helping them in some way that, that we can be of benefit to them as well. Yeah, absolutely. And that paper is one of my favorite ones, by the way. My fellows absolutely have to know it by heart when they finish their fellowship. <laughs> Thank you for doing that. I I feel similarly inspired listening to you talk about this. 
Um, as someone who was very interested in doing global surgery, I, I hung out with the guys in Boston with the PGSSC uh, as well and really was inspired by them. But listening to you talk about um, Dr. Tisdale and the work that you're doing is super inspiring, but it's often hard to think about how do we balance a busy clinical career domestically as well as all the personal responsibilities? I, I know you have uh, little babies at home. How do you reconcile those competing interests um, and how do you balance those competing priorities? Yeah, I'm not sure the word balance is the right word <laughs> and I'm sure you've heard that before, but I think you really have to go with things that make you feel alive. I think that's really important in your life that you don't lose focus, that you really think hard about things that matter the most to you because we only have one, have, have one life to live and and it's very easy to become scattered and that's one of the I would say the risks of academic medicine in general is to get pulled in a million directions into a million things that seem very interesting but not exactly your passion. Uh, and this is also why people burn out, I think. But um, to answer your question, like I do, like family to me is like was extremely important. I really wanted to have kids, and I'm like I love them to death, and I and I probably don't spend enough time with them, but. That was that was something that was going to be a priority for me. But I also, in my work, want to do that type of work and, and in terms of capacity building, global surgery. And I would be very disappointed if I wouldn't be able to build that into my career long term because that's really why I went into surgery. And so trying to, you know, like you say, balance all those different uh, expectations of myself, basically. Uh, I, I try to integrate that global surgery work into my daily academic work. So I think being a trauma surgeon makes it really great because it's something that we do every day. We do we do build capacity. We do try to uh, build a trauma system wherever we are so that everybody's empowered to take care of trauma patients. So there's there's not really a disconnect between a building that in South Sudan versus building it in rural BC and in Terrace or in like smaller towns in, in northern Canada. So I think there is a lot of parallels that I use every day, basically. So I try to do a lot of work locally as well because I feel like there's uh, a lot of connections there. But I also try to protect my time. Um, and then, so I, I, I mostly do calls. Like the way we work here is that we do full weeks of calls. Like we do weeks of acute care surgery, weeks of trauma. So when I'm not on service, it's basically my protected time to, to do that type of work. And uh, I'm very fortunate that my colleagues all support me. And if I have to deploy, uh, they'll cover my uh, my my week's service and I can actually do those things, but also uh, to be able to focus on that training, for example, and, and write uh, about that. I think that's really important, but you really have to make a deliberate effort to build it into your schedule. It's funny that we hear this uh, for this sentiment with many of our guests that there isn't really such a thing as balance, but it's more about doing what you feel what feel makes you fulfilled and makes you feel alive let me ask you one specific question maybe to end would be what advice specific advice would you give to the general surgery trainee in 2020 um, moving through their residency in terms of engaging this would you tell them to do it early would you tell them to do it late who, who should they contact what how should they move forward that's a good question and we all Often, often get that question, um, especially in, for example, uh, uh, in full sessions for Red Cross or MSF. But what I would tell 
general surgery trainees, I think what the number one, number one, number one thing they should focus on is be excellent surgeons. And that's, I can't say that enough, and I try to tell all my trainees that every day, is that, you know, at the end of the day, what you want to do is do a really good job at what you do and be excellent yeah. at what you do. No matter how you're going to turn this around, like it doesn't matter where you work or how many people you're going to touch or, you know, how many papers you publish, you really have to be good at what you do. And otherwise, you really not will not have a good uh, impact. So so I think surgical training is extremely difficult. It's And it's not that long when you think about it. It's only five years. So I would really tell them to uh, try to really focus on that aspect of it and make sure that when they finish, they can actually um, be the best that they can be. And of course, you grow, you keep learning, you learn every day. But I think this is a privileged moment for you to, to develop those skills uh, while being supervised by excellent surgeons. And that's a huge opportunity not to be wasted on on being distracted with other things. So that being said, I think it's also important to try to learn about global surgery in general and mostly global health and how how that world works. And to me, that was very difficult because I did it later. I did a master's after I finished my training and and to learn about the intricacies of global health, which is still very complex to me. But I think trying to get a sense of like what's out there, how humanitarian work uh functions, uh, the WHO and all those UN organizations, I think is important because if you're going to do meaningful work in that domain, you need to understand the intricacies of that completely different world that we're never exposed to. In terms of deployments, like during residency, I did nothing. I just really focused on my training 100%. Like, as I said, I really just wanted to be a good surgeon. Um, so I, I didn't go anywhere. And I wouldn't think it's that important nor very useful to actually do deployments when you're a resident because you're really you're not the best surgeon that you can be at that point. So I think you really have to focus primarily on that. But getting to know things about global health, like I said, and like just trying to uh, build up on your knowledge uh, of uh, of that work, I think would be really important. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.